is a joy. I trust you experience, as I do, I don't know if it just happens to the people sitting up front, but the crescendo of your voices in the worship of our God is a, it's a glorious thing. It is a delight to lift up his name. We're going to begin this morning uh, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. We'll pick up right there. And read our text this morning together. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We have been considering from this section of scripture for the last few weeks what it is to live as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what it is to live a life that's worthy of the gospel with a small series entitled, At Rest in a Restless World. We have been thinking about what does it mean to reflect the rest that we have found by faith in Christ? How is it that the Christian lives in a life of security, a life of spiritual strength and vitality, a life of peace that exhibits the fact that we know the God of peace? So many in a panic, so many tied up in knots over so many things, and so it's no different in any age. The issues might be different, the generation, the time in life might be different, but every generation faces these things that unsettle the Christian life, and again, Paul gives us the word of God as the Lord wants us to learn how to reflect the very rest in which we, in fact, exist. So Paul is giving very practical directives to the church, and there have been a series of imperatives that are in this text, and we've been looking at them. The the first message we preached, we talked about cultivating a life of constant rejoicing, and we find that in verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Then verse 5, we saw that we were to cultivate a life of peaceable kindness. That is to let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Within the church, outside the church, we are those who are peacemakers. We are those who reflect the kindness of Christ. Our lives are about others and about the Lord Jesus Christ, not about getting our piece of this pie. And then in verses 6 and 7, we saw last week that we are to cultivate a life of thankful prayer. That we're to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, we are to go to the Lord with specific requests, with an attitude of worship, and an attitude that expresses gratefulness for all that he has done for us and given to us, and all that he is. And so this morning we come to the final two commandments of this letter. Really there are three, you can find the third one in verse 21 where we are commanded to greet every saint. I actually really look forward to getting to that text. But we come to these final two in this section. And we're going to put that under two headings and we'll look at it over two weeks. This week we'll look at this idea of cultivating a life of godly thinking. You see that in verse 8. At the end of the verse, it says dwell. There's the main verb, dwell on these things. 
It's a command to think. It's a command to deliberately fix our thoughts and our minds on certain things. And then two weeks from now, we'll look at the idea of cultivating a life of godly practice. Notice in verse 9, the commandment right in the middle there, these things that you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Paul now will talk to us about a, a call to action, a call to righteous conduct, a call to a life of obedience. And this is just what we would expect, isn't it, from the Apostle Paul? That he would talk to us first about the way we think before he would talk to us about the way we act. Because that's the way, in fact, the deal works. All action is driven by thinking, whether you're aware of it or not. The core is I should say the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart, right? Everything that is evil comes from within man. And then it bursts forth in murders and thefts and adulteries and all the rest of the things that Jesus catalogs for us in the Gospels. The Bible teaches that your life is the overflow of your thoughts. Your heart or your mind, they are largely synonymous in Scripture, is the mission control center for your life. Actions are always driven what comes from the heart and the mind. Even even someone, though not a Christian, but a, a poet, you might know his name, Emerson, understood this. It's a very familiar statement. You sow a thought, you reap a what? An action. And you sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap character. And you sow character and you reap a destiny. And there certainly are things in there that are true. It all begins with our thinking. And this is very important for us to understand that the battle, first and foremost, brothers and sisters, is for your mind. We don't think that way, typically. It's so foundational. Christians are usually very aware that the Christian life is a life of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. We get that. But we have a tendency to think that most of that following Christ really is in the realm of doing things. We need, we need to pay much closer attention to our, our thought life. The issue, biblically, is not first our doing, but it is our thinking. So as we look at Philippians 4, 8 today, this verse really calls us to think about the way we think. It it calls us to be reflective about our own mental journeys. Jesus said that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your what? Mind. Obedience is not merely a matter of external conformity. It is first and foremost and primarily a matter of what's going on inwardly. He wants your heart. He wants your mind. He wants all of you, the whole of your person. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world. You are not to be pressed into the mold of the world in which you're living. Your goal is not to be like the rest. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. If you want to know where change begins, you've got a sin habit you want to abandon. You've got anger, or you've got anxiety, or you've got fear that that dominates your life. If you want to know where you need to start, it's at the level of your thoughts, You are transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, if you want to live out the good will of God visibly, it begins with getting a right heart. And that, of course, begins with entrusting yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ who will regenerate that heart, who will give you a new heart and a new spirit you will be inclined to observe his testimonies and to to obey his statutes. That change happens through faith in Christ. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you have no hope. 
except in him, of ever getting out of a heart that is opposed to the very things of God. But Christ can set you free from all of that. The truth can set you free from all of that. 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul writes, we're destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. There are ideas, there are concepts, there are, there are these speculative things, these lofty concepts that are anti-Christ and they're being raised up by this world against the knowledge of God. And Paul says we take every thought captive to obedience to Christ. Do you see that you're thinking is a matter of obedience. We serve God with our minds as well as our bodies. We need to be very aware of our thoughts. And we need to test them by God's perfect standard. Well, in the context of Philippians, you'll remember that Paul is speaking of the life that is at rest in Christ. He's speaking about enjoying the peace of God in a world in which there is no peace. At the end there in verse, or the beginning of verse seven, he says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You remember it's, it's like a group of soldiers surrounding the heart and the mind, protecting it and keeping it at perfect peace. And then at the end of verse nine, He says, and the God of peace will be with you. You can see here that the main concern that Paul is dealing with is this idea of how do we walk then in the peace that Christ purchased for us in his blood? How do we experience that very peace of God in our lives? And it should be evident to us as we come to this verse then that how we think is fundamental to the experience of the peace of God. You say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Don't I have the peace of God? And I would say, yes. You have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a measure if you're a believer, any believer, every believer has the peace of God in some degree. But what Paul is seeking to do here is to see a greater experience of his peace evident in your life so that as the storms of life come, you can display the greatness of your God by your joy and by your rest in the face of those things, in the genuine experience, the hardship of all of it. Still, here is a believer who is confident in his God, who knows how to settle his soul and comfort his soul in the King of Kings. So, Last week we saw that this peace comes into greater experience by those who learn to cultivate it through the practice of a number of virtues. Those who've learned to rejoice in Christ always. Those who don't make a mess of their relationships because they're peaceable and they're kind in those relationships. They're other-centered. They're in relationship for the other, not for themselves. There is peace to those who who don't panic under pressure, but instead draw near to God in worshipful, thankful prayer. And in our text this morning, that peace is strengthened in your experience by those who have mastered their thinking. They brought their thinking under the lordship of Christ. Let me ask you this morning, do you think about what you think about? We need to be very aware, and Paul wants to help us. So let's look at verse 8. He begins by saying, finally, brethren. Again, with that, I pointed out many times, Paul's warmth, his pastoral affection for these people. He's not coming at them angry. He's not coming at them to to rebuke them. He's coming at them to instruct them and to remind them and to help them in life. And he says, finally, brethren, he comes to the climax of his appeal to the Philippians and he says, look, here's everything, here's the the summation of it. This This is where all of this should lead. You need to pay careful attention to the way you think 
and you need to pay, pay careful attention to the things that you do. If you want rest in a restless world, you must do these two things. You've got to think right thoughts. Verse 8, you've got to engage in godly thinking, and then you must do right things. Verse 9, you must pursue godly living. We'll get to that, as I said, in a couple of weeks. So today we'll look at this matter of right thinking, and I'm just going to hang this on two hooks this morning. Number one, the, the call to godly thinking, the call to godly thinking, and number two, the content of godly thinking, the call to thinking and the content of godly thinking. beginning of verse, or at the end of verse 8, we were going to begin there. Paul, as I said, gave you that main verb. He says, dwell on these things. This is, this is the call to godly thinking. Now, other translations perhaps have think on these things or meditate or consider. Paul uses a word here that has the idea of sustained, concentrated, careful attention. This is not the free thinking of a philosopher. This is not a call to the imaginative thinking of a dreamer or a poet. This is a call to the focused and disciplined thinking of a student. And I was hesitant to say that because I know the minute that I say student, you're going to go, I graduated and I'm done with that. You're not. To be a disciple is to be a learner. To be a disciple is to be a student. And here is the careful, focused, disciplined thinking of the student. This will require your concentration. We actually get the mathematical term logarithm. Now that's making a lot of you nervous, isn't it? I wasn't much of a math student myself. You say logarithm to me, I say, I'm done. Give me a ball, let me go play. We get logic from it. And so this is not going to be sort of mindlessly counting to 10. This is going to require effort on your part. But Christ is our tutor. The word of God is our subject matter. And you can do this because it is commanded of you to do this. Not only is it some effort, but it's going to be sustained effort. In fact, the verb tense conveys an idea of continuance, as I've said, of constancy. We should always be thinking this way. And that, brothers and sisters, I know this is no news to you, but that is troublesome right from the beginning, living in 21st century America. We are a distracted people. We live among a distracted people. We live in a culture that is largely mindless and very impatient with anything that requires sustained reasoning. It's why I like those little bouncy worship choruses when I was young and immature in the faith because it, I couldn't hang with, with a hymn. You know what I mean? That I didn't have enough grasp of theology. I couldn't hang with some of those more difficult words. I didn't understand what I was singing. Our culture loves to sail passively on the winds of emotion. We long to be carried along on just a river of entertainment. We just go from one day to the next, and this is very concerning. Those of you who are growing up in this, in this and you have never known what it was to have your phone connected to a wall, or you've never known what it was to actually have to walk somewhere, or, you, you know, this is a different age in, in many ways, and again, Sin is in every age, and difficulty is in every age, but our culture, our century confronts us with some different challenges. And we live in a culture that just bounces from one stimulus to the next. We like images, don't we? Not words. 
I, had a, I, I found a pair of uh, really old ice skates, antique ice skates, and I gave one of them to my daughter and another one to my daughter-in-law's decoration for Christmas at Christmas. And it was interesting, as I, I looked up these skates, I found an old advertisement on the internet for these skates, and it was addressed to boys between the age of like 10 or 12. What was interesting was there was a little hand-drawn picture up in the left-hand corner of some guy racing quickly on his skates, but then there were probably six paragraphs explaining why they should buy these skates. They're faster, they're lighter, you're going to look so-and-so. It was interesting to me how much of it was text appealing to a 10-year-old boy. Now we just get just do it Nike images just firing at us trying to create some some image in our thinking. You read the 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 church growth movement books they tell me that I should be done by now. I should have been done 10 minutes ago. 12 to 13 minutes is primo if you want to maximize and fill out the seats in your church in our day. I read a statistic the other day that the average American during his waking hours looks at his cell phone every, roughly every four and a half minutes. That says by now you should have looked at your cell phone at least four times, maybe five. Thank you for turning them off, by the way. Friends, if we're not aware of these things, we're like the proverbial frog boiling in the pot. I am deeply concerned for our capacity to pay attention a while back, people said, preach shorter, preach shorter. I don't know whether they've just given up or, or whether we've just gotten over it. But we ought to be able to, to garner our attention and listen for an hour. We really should. That's a good thing. Deal with that impatience in your heart and realize the culture that's creating it. We like emojis, don't we? Not long conversations. We'd rather just push the button than actually call. We're distracted, we're undisciplined, and beloved, the sad thing is much of the church isn't far behind. The, the church is spiritually weak because the church has a form of, of spiritual ADD. We are just so distracted by so many things. We can't maintain our attention. We're just lost in the trivialities and the novelties and the meaningless distractions of the day. Tony Ranke writes, as in every age, God calls his children to stop. As in every age, God calls his children to stop and to study what captures their attention in this world and weigh the consequences and fight for undistracted hearts before him. That is a very good statement. You cannot afford to just go downstream like a, like a leaf. God wants your thoughts. And thinking requires care, and it requires time, and it requires you to take the bull by the horns and seek to make that time undistracted. And to obey this means that we're going to be very, very unlike our culture. You just got to come to terms with that. You can't be getting the latest everything and following along with the culture lockstep in this this insatiable quest for speed and efficiency. You've got more information in that Bible than you will ever master in this life. You don't need a gazillion gigabytes of more information about frivolous earthly things. You need more knowledge of the word. And so obedience to this command brothers and sisters, means that we are a thoughtful people, we're a reflective people, we are continually reflecting upon certain things. Now, what things? That gets us to our second point, the content of godly thinking. 
We've seen the call to godly thinking. This is the content, what we are to think about. And Paul catalogs eight godly virtues upon which the Christian must concentrate. Technology rebels. It, it, it has a life of its own. Not me, I promise. Well... We found it. It's always the last one. There we go. Where were we? Eight godly virtues upon which the Christian must concentrate. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration. I'm going to run with it. When, when my daughter, like your daughter, it was in her, uh, when she hit the double digits, she became consumed with a horse, didn't she? It happens, it happens to every girl. There's something about it. My daughter loved horses, and at one point we bought her a round pen. Now, a round pen is round, that makes sense, but it's not truly round because it comes in individual uh, pieces of fencing that get stuck together with some, some pins, and the idea of a round pen is to bring that horse that is out in the field into an arena in which now the trainer has that horse under control. There are no corners to hide in. That horse is under control, and that horse now is taught to concentrate. And the idea is so that that horse might come under the will of its master so that that horse can be profitable to his master. And that's the picture I want you to keep in your mind. These eight virtues are like eight sections of fence that will form an octagonal fence around which your thoughts are free to roam. Now, I say free to roam intentionally. This is an arena for godly thinking. It's restrictive, but in a good way, in a profitable way, in a way that helps us to concentrate on the right things and to bring our lives under control for the master. You'll notice that the first six virtues are preceded by the word whatever. Paul simply could have said, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, and so on, but he didn't. He took the time to put the word whatever in Greek in there in front of every one of these adjectives. He writes out the word whatever six times, and it's not mere filler. You think of yourself writing a letter. Would you have done it that way? Well, you would have done it if you would have for a reason, and Paul does. And I think that reason is this. In fact, I should note, too, that, that, that he says then twice below that for the final two virtues, he says, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise. You see, he's, he's trying to say, look, this, this pen is not that restrictive. This pen is not a burden in which you're to th put your thought life. It's broad. It's whatever is true. It is if there's anything excellent. There's a breadth and a comprehensiveness and an expansiveness. This thing is not meant to crowd you, but to comfort you in this life. It is to bring your thinking into the arena of what is right and good and profitable to think about. Again, so many believers are so wound up, so stirred into a lather, 
so anxious about so many things, as the Lord said to Martha. And it's precisely because they are preoccupied with things that are outside of the arena that God has given us to think. They never make progress or advance in the battle against anxiety or fear or sin or temptation or the experience of peace because they're consumed with earthly matters. And God wants better for us. So what are these eight virtues that we must discipline our minds to think about? Well, number one, whatever is true. Whatever is true. That which corresponds to reality. That which is reliable. That which is genuine. This word speaks of the opposite of all that is a lie, all that is deceitful, all that is error. We are to think upon, constantly consider that which is true or truthful. Now we get help right away from, from uh, John 17, 17, where Jesus says, sanctify them in truth, what, truth, what? Thy word is truth. Setting your mind on the things of the word of God will always guide you in to truth. Psalm 19.9, the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. And so the Bible becomes the plumb line for our thinking. All thinking is brought to measure against Scripture, and we do so. This is, this is what it means to take thoughts captive to obedience to Christ. We have the mind of Christ in the word of Christ and we evaluate our thinking in light of his thinking and we sit in judgment upon our thinking. That thought is right. That thought is true. That thought is accurate. It affirms us in that. But the word of God also says that thought is unworthy of him. That thought is false. That thought is sinful. That thought is outside the fence. Jesus Christ is the living word. You remember that he said that he is the way and the truth and the life. Ephesians 4.21 says that all that is in Christ is truth. You can set your mind on the word of God. You can set your mind on the living word of God on Jesus Christ himself. You can set your mind on the spirit. We're to walk in the spirit who is called the spirit of truth. You remember in Ephesians 6 that the very armor that we are called to be putting on begins with strapping that belt in which all the other pieces were either hung or, or tucked in so that the warrior could, could defend and could fight. And that belt is called the belt of what? Truth. One commentator says this, I love this, quote, the word of God does not commend free thinkers who don't have a sense of obligation to think God's thoughts after him. That is not a virtue. The virtue is found in the man whose mind is sanctified and disciplined to agree with what God has revealed in scripture and in his son. That is a very good statement. So this is the first section of the fence, that we dwell on whatever is true. Secondly, whatever is honorable. This is a term that refers to those things that are worthy of respect. It's used in the pastoral epistles. Get this, it's always translated digni dignity or dignified. That which is Worthy of honor because it has weight, because it has gravity, because it is august. And again, we need to hear this because this is the opposite of all that would be flippant or silly or light. Don't worry, be happy. Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. This is the opposite of all of that. You see, and this, this is not prohibiting our, a righteous sense of humor or a good belly laugh or, or a good nature. Don't get the idea that Paul here is saying, look, you need to be grim, you need to be dour. That's not what he's saying. 
What he is saying, though, brothers and sisters, and hear this, is that the Christian is a person who lives life soberly, takes life seriously. There is a weight about your life, and people know it. People can see it, and it, it, it draws honor from them. Another man writes this, it refers to lofty things, majestic things, things that lift the mind from the cheap and the tawdry to that which is noble and good and of moral worth, end quote. 1 Timothy 2, 2 says that we are to pray for civil government. How do we pray for them? What do we pray for them? Well, we're praying for them so that we might be able to live a tranquil and quiet life Get this, in all godliness and dignity. There's that word again. You lead a quiet life, a tranquil life, a godly life, a life of weight. A life that, when it slams into somebody, leaves an impact mark, puts a dent. They remember you because you're different. You set your mind on that which is honorable, that which is weighty, that which wins the respect of others. They may not agree with you, but they see your sincerity, they see your seriousness of purpose, they see your dignified life, and it produces in them a respect for you and for the God who saved you. So you need to evaluate your thinking. Is it truthful and is it worthy of honor? Thirdly, whatever is right, this word is simply the word righteous, that's the idea. Whatever is upright, whatever is holy, does your thinking align with the things that God calls right? The precepts of the Lord are right, says Psalm 19 and verse 8. We are to set our minds to thinking about the things that are righteous. We are to dwell on right things. Fourthly, whatever is pure those things that are unmixed and undefiled from the world. We set our minds on those things that are morally right and uncontaminated. You'll remember remember 1 John 3 and verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as Christ himself is pure. That's this word. And he contrasts that immediately by saying everyone who practices sin, that's the contrast. We're to set our minds on the things that are pure, not the things that are sinful. And how often we let our minds drift to that which is sinful, that which is impure. And certainly we're talking about sexual impurity, but there are many other contaminated things in this world, aren't there? Anything in this world that is contrary to God's word and God's will and God's person, when we give ourselves to those things... We're sinning against God. We've, we've, we've gone outside the pen. We're to keep ourselves, James 1, 27, unstained by the world and its lusts. And we have to evaluate and give our attention to the things that are pure. Again, Psalm 19 and verse 8, the commandment of the Lord is what? Pure. It enlightens the eyes. Fifth, he says, whatever is lovely. This is a word that's used only here in the New Testament. It speaks to things that are ethically beautiful, morally attractive. Those things that are winsome. It's it's the opposite of all that is coarse and ugly and crude. Things like innuendo. Things like pornography. Things like foul language, that which is beautiful in the eyes of God. In fact, if you, if you really sort of just piece the word together, it, it has the idea of those things that are toward love or draw out love. In other words, those things that evoke a sense of, of lovely. Like when you see a beautiful sunset or you uh, experience something that is just, it, it, it makes you it makes your, your heart rise and, and it's buoyant and it, 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 it draws you out. Your mind is to be set, if you will, on those things that elicit admiration. Those things that are generally thought to be noble. There's a sixth virtue. He says, whatsoever things are of good repute. 
or good reputation. And it's a related term to lovely. It, it also is used only here in the New Testament. It's that which is praiseworthy or admirable or held in high esteem. That which is well spoken of by God and by man. There are things, brothers and sisters, and, 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 and just in, in watching the news as people put clickbait or whatever on, on the internet, the world gets this. The world knows more than you think it knows. It sees more than you think it sees. It doesn't let on that it really sees godly character in you. But the, the world knows what lovely is. The world has a sense of those things that are of good reputation. There are things that are universally virtuous. And the world can't deny that. Things which are noble among men. Things like faithfulness, courage, sacrifice, honesty, kindness, endurance, compassion, integrity, wisdom, love. Some things go viral because they're those things, and the world knows it just intuitively that there is something that is good and right about those things, and those are the very things we're to set our minds on. Even the world cannot deny the nobility and rightness of these things. They transcend culture, they transcend country, they transcend languages. These are the things that are right in the sight of all men. We are to set our minds on those things that have a good reputation. I'm just going to pull seven and eight together for the sake of time. If there's any excellence... And if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Paul is going from the specific to the more general. The specific, is it true? Does it align with God's word? Is it honorable? Is it noble and worthy of respect? Is it right? Is it aligned with God's standards? Is it pure? Is it characterized by cleanliness and undefiled by worldliness? Is it lovely? Is it morally beautiful and winsome and pleasing? Is it of good reputation? Is it admirable and respectable and held in high esteem by God and man? And then he makes these two general statements. If there's any excellence, if there's anything that is virtuous, if there's anything that is morally excellent, it's this catch-all. It's this just sweeping statement. It's, it's a big tent concept. If there's anything worthy, he says, of praise. Whatever things didn't fit, under the tent of excellence, fit under the tent of praiseworthy. Those are the eight sections of fence that we have been given. That defines our round pen that we are to put about our thinking. And even if you can't remember all of those, and I want to continue to encourage you to memorize those verses, four to nine in this chapter, it will really help you in life. I also want to encourage you to memorize them because they're filled with imperatives. They are God's requirement, and if you can't remember them, you can't do them. Memorize them. But even if you don't have them all down at this point, hopefully by this time you've begun to get a sense or a feel for the way a Christian's thinking ought, ought to be hemmed in. And now we need to get down to brass tacks. What do we do with this? Well, three things. Number one, you need to be thinking about your thinking. We all need to become much more reflective, much more aware of our trails of thought. We've got to avoid that lazy boy Christian mentality that says, I just fling the feet up and the back, and I'm just riding this thing out until Jesus appears in the skies to take me home. No. He has called you to think about your thinking. So often, people will confess, and I've been there myself, where you are trapped, succumbing to temptation again and again. Why does that happen? Because you haven't dealt with it at the, at the root. You haven't dealt with it at the level of your thinking. Why is the anxious person anxious? Is it because of the circumstances of their life? No, no. Not anymore that you've heard the illustration of the teabag that gets stuck in hot water. Is it the water's fault? What came out of the teabag was what was in the teabag. 
when it got into hot water. What comes out of you when you get in hot water in life? That's a reflection of what's going in inside. That's a reflection of maybe your spiritual condition. It's certainly a reflection one way or the other of, of your maturity and of your uh, adopting these very things that God is trying to help us with here. What about the person who, who constantly battles with anger or with bitterness? If you're just trying to deal with it by taking another vacation <laughs> and getting some rest and getting more sleep, as valuable as those things are, if you don't get down to the root, you don't deal with your heart and the things that it's thinking, you're just going to continue to stumble time and time and time again. We have to start here. What have I been thinking about? We think all day long. They tell me we think all night long. But God has blessed me with an unconscious sleep pattern, and I'm thankful for it. We are thinking all day long, and we've learned just kind of to go along and not really pay attention to our thoughts. We need to do that. We need to begin rummaging back and evaluating the course of our silent meditations, and we need to let the Word of God do what it does. It judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are exposed and lay bare before God, and so you can, with David, look to the Lord and say, God, search my heart. See if there be any anxious way in me. Evaluate my thinking and reveal it to me. And if, if there are things that are sinful, if there are things that are wrong, I need that exposed. Help me to understand. We need to begin there thinking about our thinking. Secondly, we need to, in sticking with our round penned example, we need to abandon forbidden pasture. We need to be very aware, brothers and sisters, of what we take in. By way of music, by way of video, by way of social media, by way of books. And look, you young people, we can talk and you can yeah but me all day long, but I've been there, I've been you, I've made the rationalizations as to why I can listen to this and it's okay when it is not okay. And why I can see this. Why I can allow that through the eye gate of my life and into my mind and heart where you know those visual images, once you've seen them, are very, very difficult to extricate. What you watch matters. Quit fighting God over this thing and set your life about a course of purity. Look at the things that are good for you instead of the things that are evil. Learn to be a student of your heart and your thoughts and judge what's drawing you into those things. Begin to ask the question, why do I like this song? I've heard it so many times. I've made the argument myself. It's really not about the lyrics. I just like the beat. Right. You're not thinking carefully. There are all kinds of things that that influence you to like what you like. Some of them coming from within you, others coming from your peers around you. You need to go to God and say, Lord, help me with this. Help me to surround myself with things that are profitable. Now I'm getting ahead of myself. Listen, you're not to allow your minds to be saturated with wickedness and worldliness. Obviously, this means turning away from things that are overtly evil. Don't fiddle with, with the occult. Don't fiddle with horror movies, don't fiddle with sexual impurity and adultery, don't fiddle with filthy speech, don't drown your life in a bunch of murder and violence and horror and so on. You cannot even begin to honor the Lord with your mind if you're delighting in the things of demons. You cannot do it. And I plead with you, turn away from those things. That does impact you. It will impact you, and the fact that you think it will not impact you says you're proud and ignorant. It will impact you. And you cannot honor the Lord by doing those things. But I want to talk for a second about things more subtle. More subtle than those overtly evil things, which most of us will say, yeah, I can see it there. It's the subtle 
worldliness that becomes perhaps even a greater threat in some ways to many souls. James 4.4, he who makes himself a friend of the world makes himself a what of God? An enemy. And brother and sister, you cannot live straddling the fence of this life. You've got both feet on God or you've got both feet in the world. Do not be deceived, James says. And I come back to this again. You and I are, are to be different, not just in our entertainment choices, but in the things that our minds are preoccupied with. And again, this is why some Christians make very little progress in this life, because their minds are totally preoccupied with the things of earth. It's the news of the day, it's the latest tweet, it's the latest trend, it's the latest threat, it's the next viral video. They're just distracted by all that surfacey fluff that has nothing to do with eternity at all. It's junk food, it's snack food, and it dulls your appetite for what is weighty and right and good. And again, we could make a parallel here, couldn't we? The first time my mother got me, if she'd have presented me with broccoli on one hand and a Snickers bar on the other, you can guess which one I'd have picked. But most of the time at this point in my life, I actually would choose the green leafy thing. What happened? Well, my tastes have changed. Why? Because I made a break with the Snickers bar. And I ate broccoli until broccoli became appealing. It, I developed a palate for it. The same thing happens spiritually. You've got to learn to cultivate in your life spiritual appetite. And so much of the earthly, flighty, bouncy, bouncy does nothing but, but dull your flavor for that which is good. Isaiah 55, why will you spend money for what is not bread? Come delight yourself free of cost in what is good. God has laid a banquet for you out in his son. You spend any time with some believers and all you will hear about is the woes and worries of life. You will hear about how troubled and anxious they are about the latest mass shooting, about the threat of war, carrying the burdens of, of, of the agenda of the sexually perverse, all that's being taught in a godless school system, all the underhandedness of wicked politicians, and so on. That is just where they swim. Do you understand, brother and sister, that if that is where you swim, you are sinning against God? That is a violation directly of the principles that are laid out in this text. You are not to be consumed with the things of this world, but with the things above, right? That's what the text of Scripture tells us in Colossians 3. We do live in this world, and we do have a responsibility not to bury our head in the sand, but listen, this world is filled with corruption and turmoil and tribulation. I got news. It always has been. And you must get over it. Get over it. And remember that God is sovereign. He is providentially ruling over every detail of national affairs and international affairs. He knows about a balloon over the middle of the United States. He knows that we shot it down over the sea. He knows what... On, he knows... And he's in it all. Don't spend another minute panicked about, I wonder what the Chinese got. Who cares? Because I know what God's got. It really doesn't concern me all that much. The Chinese will do nothing apart from the will of God. We get so flustered about this stuff. You must get over it. And listen, this text bids you, get on to a good theme. Get on to a good theme. Of course you've got tribulation in the world. Duh. Jesus said we would. But he said, be of good courage, be of good cheer. The word means be bold, be enheartened, be encouraged. Why? Because I've overcome the world. You set your mind on me, you'll get over the little stuff of this planet. 
That, beloved, is an invitation to think, not about the things you see on the news and not about the things you experience, the difficulties that you're faced with presently, that this is a call by Jesus to appropriate by faith all that Scripture tells us, and that is it is well with our soul. He's got it all under control, and everything that's going on, he will work together for our good. Take a deep breath. Jesus said in that passage, I tell you these things, listen to this again, hear the heart of Christ for you this morning in this tumultuous world, I tell you these things so that you may have what? Peace. He wants you to be at peace. There's a third response to these things. And that is that we need to learn to be contented and disciplined to stay within the fence. You need to think about your thinking. You need to abandon the forbidden pasture. And you need to learn to be disciplined and contented to stay within the fence. We've got to learn to delight ourselves in what is good. We've got to begin cultivating a taste for holy things. I could put it this way, Christians, I know I was in my youth, often consumed with the question, what's wrong with this? Why can't I do it? Where's the boundary? That question's backwards, isn't it? This text would say we should be asking this, what's right with this? What builds me? What edifies? What strengthens? See, that's what he's saying. Whatever is true. Not the lies and deceptions of corrupt leaders. That's not where you're to be thinking. You're to think on whatever is honorable. Not worried about all the lies and deceptions of, of, of the foolish and the defiled mockers that are in this culture. Your mind is to be set by God's command on what is right. Not the sin and immoral filth of this world. You're commanded by God to set your attention on the things that are pure, not the sin-stained and not the, the morally mixed, not the impure, not innuendo, but what is, what is pure through and through. Whatever is lovely, not the filthy and the coarse and the defiled, whatever is of good repute, not those things that are of disrepute. If there's any excellence, all that's virtuous, if there's anything worthy of praise, whatever God would be pleased with. And I want to remind you one more time, because I want it to fall with some seriousness upon you. I want, it, I want you to see this more than a, than a self-help message. I could ask you, why, why did the Lord write these things to us? And you say, because he wants me to be at peace. He wants me to be at rest. And I would say that is exactly true. But it is more than that. And this ought to fall with more weight than just the idea that somehow Paul's writing these things to us as good advice so that we can be fulfilled and we can live a joy-filled, anxiety-free, peaceful life. Beloved, th this is a moral text. These are commandments to do these things. If we are not taking our thought captive to these things, we are living in sin. And it is every bit as sinful as immorality, as cussing, as thievery. We are not loving the Lord with our minds and with all our beings. If we are driven by a 24-hour news cycle and the latest blog perspective and the social media post and the fear mongers and their, their latest conspiracy theory, and blah, 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 it just goes on and on and on. Listen, we've got to take that bull by the horns, and those things should not dominate our days or our discussions. Beloved, evaluate those things that most occupy your time and attention. Evaluate them, look at them, and ask yourself, is this good? Is this true? Is this honorable? Are these things right? Are they pure? Are they lovely? Are they of good reputation? Are they excellent? Are they worthy of praise? Are there things for which I can give thanks? Are there things that I could, if I can say this, are, are they things that I could do with Christ if he were presently here with me? Could I, could I listen to that? Could I watch that? Could I engage in that? Could I associate closely with that person? We've talked a lot about this principle that beholding is becoming. 
What you look at is what you become like. What you surround yourself with is who you become. And if beholding is becoming, then the question that confronts us in this text is who or what are you beholding? A.W. Tozer says this, and I'll close with it. Quote, make your thoughts a sanctuary God can inhabit. Make your thoughts a sanctuary God can inhabit. And don't let any of the rest of your life dishonor God. See to it that not a foot of ground is unholy. See to it that every hour and every place is given over to God and you will worship him and he will accept it. There's one more application I would like to bring as we think about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very personal. Some believers really struggle in life because they haven't come to a place where this text, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good reputation, whatever, if anything, excellent, anything worthy of praise. You see, those things also deal with this table. Some believers get so wrapped up in thinking in that foreign field about their own lives and about their sin what predominates in their mind is that I'm a sinner, not that I'm a saint. Christ Jesus has made you a saint. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ here, your sins have been removed as far as east is from west. They will never be held to your account. Those sins were punished in Christ. Your sins, and they are like crimson. There is no question about it, just as mine are, like scarlet, red, deep red and yet Jesus red blood forgives to the extent washes clean to the extent that you are white as snow and brother and sister in Christ your mind as you think about your life you're right you're a sinner you're right, you see those things that are in the, in the field outside and you're tempted to want to go out and eat those daisies. And Jesus says, no, you stay right here and you keep your mind fixed on me. This is true food. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down out of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Keep your eyes fixed on him who is true and honorable and right and pure. Let your mind be dominated by Christ. See his sacrificial death as more weighty than the sins that you've committed. Let his righteousness be more weighty than your unrighteousness. Keep your mind fixed on him and give thanks. Lord, we thank you. What thanks can we render we have access to the Father who is sinless and can be around no sin, who can countenance no unrighteousness. There is no darkness at all. And Lord, we surely have been not only in darkness, but we were darkness, and yet you have given us life and light in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today we exult again in your salvation. You are our rock and our refuge, our strong tower. You are the one who 
But Lord, we ride into heaven on your coattails. Your righteousness is righteous enough. It is perfect altogether and worthy of heaven. Your blood, because it is righteous, was able to atone because it is infinite for our infinite sins. Lord, you have made us your friends, your brother. You have called us your children. You have adopted us. And Lord, we have the promise not only of your death and resurrection and its benefits, but Lord, we have the promise of your return and how we anticipate that day when we will be with you forever and ever. Thank you again for this very helpful text. I pray that you'll help your sheep, Lord, to to rest, to stay within the pen, to find themselves delighting in their God and all of his goodness towards us. And we give you praise in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.